Jeremiah chapter number 29. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem under the residue of the elders which were carried away captive and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. After that, Jeconiah the king and the queen and the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, and the carpenters and the smiths were departed from Jerusalem by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent unto Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd add blessing to the reading of your word. Pray that you give me unction, liberty as I try to preach your word. Lord, help me to guard my tongue, say only what you'd have me to say in expounding your word. Pray that you'd help us tonight from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah's ministry was primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. At the time of Jeremiah chapter 29, the northern tribes have already been carried away into Assyrian captivity. So all that remains in the land is the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah, of course, if you know Bible history, is headed into Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah's ministry is primarily one of judgment, of a message of judgment to Judah, and a call to repentance for their idolatry and their wicked ways. It's helpful to know that, that Judah was carried away into Babylonian captivity in primarily three stages. Three stages. The first stage is under the king Jehoiakim, which is before this passage, and this was when Daniel uh, was carried into captivity. When Nebuchadnezzar first besieged Jerusalem, he only carried away the best and the brightest in that first stage of this exile. The second stage happened somewhere around six to eight years after that, according to historians. And this exile was under the king Jeconiah. Jeconiah only reigned for about a hundred days. But at the tail end of that, Jeconiah, his family, and about 10,000 other chiefs were carried away to Babylon in this second stage. Ezekiel would have been carried away in this second stage of exile. Uh, it is to this group of people that Jeremiah writes these letters that we find here in Jeremiah chapter 29. And then the third and final stage of this exile was somewhere around a decade or 12, year, 12 years later when the remaining people, other than a small poor remnant, uh, were carried away to Babylon. So we find ourselves in a place where a large group of the people of God have been carried away into Babylonian captivity. And to the Jewish mind, this would have been about the worst possible thing that could have happened to them. They were, of course, familiar with the covenants that God had made with their forefathers, uh, and by extension to them. One of those covenants would have certainly been the land covenant, or what's oftentimes referred to as the Palestinian covenant, uh, that God made uh, with, with Israel. And to be carried away away from the promised land would be to be carried away from the place of God's promise. Indeed, the place that was God's promise to the nation of Israel. So they presumed that even in the midst of their idolatry and their immorality, that God would not carry them away from the land. 
But of course, God expected of them obedience. And because they disobeyed and because they failed to repent of their disobedience, God carried them away into Babylonian captivity. The times that are leading up to this exile are filled with idolatry, sexual immorality, injustice, covetousness, dishonesty, and all of these things which Jeremiah denounces to these people in his messages. The times leading up to this exile are filled with formal religion. These people claim the promises of God. They love the promises of God, all the while worshiping false gods. The times are also, no doubt, filled with increasing apostasy. Sometime before the, occurrence, uh, the, the events that occur in our passage, uh, King Jehoiakim takes the word of God that was written to him, and he cuts it up into pieces. Do you know how callous you have to be to do something like that? And it's an indication of the times that they lived in. Uh, the times were of increasing apostasy. It is then no wonder that the times were also uh, leading up to divine judgment. Despite ample warnings, they never heeded the message to repent. And so God raised up Nebuchadnezzar for just this purpose, to cause the people to, to repent, to, cause the, to, to, to carry the, the people of God away into captivity. When we come to our passage here in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah is writing letters to these people who have just been carried away in this second stage of exile. In these letters, Jeremiah addresses two extreme attitudes. The first extreme attitude would have been the people that had no hope or felt no hope in Babylon. In verses 4 to 6, Jeremiah is telling these people to build houses, to plant gardens, to have children, to marry and have children. Now, if you have to command those things to people, those people must be pretty desperate. To get to a point where you don't think it's worthwhile to proceed with even the necessities of life, you have to be pretty hopeless. And truly, these people were hopeless. They had just left their homeland. They had practically nothing. So they are practically starting over with life uh, in a place that is not uh, their promised land, that is not uh, part of their covenant with God. And so certainly, uh, they would have been excused if they felt hopeless. Hopeless. But then there are those with a false sense of hope. We see this in verses 6 to 8, or, or yeah, verses 8 to 9, excuse me. And, and in fact, let's just read these verses because we won't deal with them. But in these verses, uh, we find, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which he caused uh, to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. There are false prophets that have come to these Israelites and have delivered a message of false hope. If you want to see something similar to this, just go back a chapter to chapter number 20, 28, Hananiah, I believe it is, and you see the kind of false prophets that were constantly perking up during Jeremiah's message that were rebuking Jeremiah, were opposing his messages of gloom and doom. And so here in Babylon, I imagine that there were false prophets that were rising up and were appealing to bits and pieces of God's promises to the nation of Israel. They were perhaps drawing upon their memory of Gideon and Samson and saying that certainly God could do the same here in Babylon and deliver us uh, very quickly from this evil and adulterous place. But Jeremiah's message to these people with false hope is to settle down a little bit. You're not being delivered. And he, he goes on, in fact, to tell them that they will be in captivity, they will be in Babylon for 70 years before God sends them back to uh, to the promised land. 
And so, so Jeremiah has a message to both those without hope and those that have, ha- that have a false sense of hope. And I think we can find some common ground here with the Israelites. Just like the Israelites, we are not in our homeland. The New Testament calls us strangers and pilgrims. Strangers, we are foreigners here. We do not belong here. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are traveling through on our way to our destination, uh, which is heaven. And it is becoming more and more apparent that we do not belong here. Each day that goes by makes it feel like we're being squeezed into the margins of society uh, ever more, ever more increasingly. And even in America, where we are certainly thankful for our heritage, we are certainly thankful for the freedoms that we have, we are losing the semblance of Christian influence that we have upon this nation. As one man put it, you'd have to be blind, deaf, dumb, and without sense not to perceive the decline of every biblical, God-ordained institution and how true that is. I honestly think we need to really start thinking about America uh, much more seriously in, in light of our Christianity because we are certainly Christians before we are Americans. Before we say things like, God bless America, we're going to have to explain how we can get away with uh, killing 60 million unborn babies. We're going to have to explain how homosexuality is practiced and celebrated openly in our society. We're going to have to explain how evolution is taught and accepted in our public schools. And I mention America because we are Americans. We are Christian Americans. We love this nation. Uh, We love the freedoms that we possess. We love the heritage that we have. But the truth of the matter is we do not belong here. Even in America, we do not belong here. We are citizens of another country. We are strangers and pilgrims, but passing through. And every day this world, our world, slides closer and closer to hell each day. And we, 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 we could certainly say, like the Israelites in Jeremiah chapter 29, we are living in a pagan world. And you know, sometimes we can fall into one of two extremes in light of that. We can either have no hope or a false sense of hope. Uh, we can lose all hope because the reality is we know which direction this world is going. This world is, 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 is sliding to hell as quickly as it possibly can. We know that one day, perhaps soon, they will obey and hearken to the words of the Antichrist. And so sometimes it feels like we are fighting a losing battle because we know that it gets worse before it gets better. But it's important to keep our eyes on what God has called us to do. And so it's these words in Jeremiah chapter 29 that are an encouragement to us. But then there are those who have a false sense of hope. And I have to be careful with what I say here. Because I believe that the rapture could occur at any moment. I truly believe that. I believe that the rapture could occur while I am preaching this message. But I also believe the rapture could occur in a thousand years. I believe that it could go another thousand years before, we are, before the church is, 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 is raptured out of here. You have no idea. I have no idea. And the reason for that is because God doesn't want us to have an idea of when the rapture will occur. But I think sometimes we as Christians get the mentality of, oh, it's getting bad in the world, so it must mean that the Lord's going to return pretty soon. That we're going to be called out of here pretty soon. And while that could happen, it is no guarantee that the Lord comes back because it's getting bad in the world. It is no guarantee at all. If you look at church history, the, the Lord allowed the church to go through some pretty awful persecutions 
on a widespread level. And he didn't rapture the church out then. And so we ought to have no expectation that because things are getting progressively worse, that the Lord's going to call us out of here and He's going to deliver us from our trouble. Uh, we, we, we should, just as those that have no hope and that look at the situation and say that, that we are without hope, we are fighting a losing battle, so those of us that would look to the rapture as an escape from this world should simply look to be faithful to where the Lord has called us and strive to just, just be faithful and persistent in His, in His call, calling upon our lives. Now as I close the introduction, we get into... Uh, the meat of the message tonight. Let me just point out one thing from verse number 4. If you look at verse number 4 with me, so thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried, uh, carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Make no mistake about it, the Lord was the cause of their pain. The Lord was the one who stepped in and delivered them into the hand of Babylon. Now, we know in their case exactly why. It was to call them to repentance. It was to uh, punish them for, for, their, for their sin. And God goes so far to say, not in this passage, but in other passages, to call Nebuchadnezzar my servant, the Lord's servant. So God raised Nebuchadnezzar up for just a cause as this. And you know, that can oftentimes be perplexing to us. How God uses wicked men. Truly, Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man. How God uses wicked men to accomplish His purposes. It would be good for us to understand this, though, that God is in control. No election has surprised God. No assassination that was motivated for, by political reasons has ever surprised God. And yet, God can use the political leaders in this world to accomplish His purpose. And indeed, He does use the political leaders, no matter how wicked they are, to accomplish His purposes. He is in control. Uh, he is sovereign. He does work in this world. So what is this first lesson to living in a pagan world? It is to submit to God's plan. Jeremiah tells these Jews that God is in control and that you have to submit. That is his message, to submit to his plan. You need to accept this. You need to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. They could have easily planned to revolt. They could have easily rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, but it wouldn't have done any good. Rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar would have, been, would have proved to be as, as fruitful as Jonah running away from the, the, the will of God to go to Nineveh and preach there. And submission to God's will in these terms is to be content, to be at peace, to have joy in the circumstances that God has called us to. Biblical, mis biblical submission is as much attitude as it is action. Submission is trusting Him to know what He is doing, even though we don't know what He is doing, but to know that He knows what He is doing uh, and has a, He has a plan. Submission is not to go through our circumstances with worry, fear, and doubt. That's not submission. Submission is to trust Him, to trust His plan, and to obey Him uh, despite how, how bad things may, may look. Now look with me at verses 5 and 6. Let's just read the verses. Build ye, and these are the imperatives Jeremiah gives to the, the, the exiled Israelites in Babylon. Build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to, 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 to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. Now there are three things in those verses, and they kind of go together. 
First, build houses for yourself and live in them. Second, plant gardens and eat the fruit, fruit of it. Third, have children, marry and have children. Now again, the Israelites would have looked at their time in Babylon as a total waste. And the question that I'm sure they would have asked themselves is, why dig down roots in Babylon? Why do anything worthwhile in Babylon? They knew, they knew. In fact, by these letters, they knew that God was going to take them back to Judah. It was just going to be a little while before he did it. They knew they didn't belong in Babylon. They knew their residence was not in Babylon. And here God is instructing them to settle down, to build a house, to plant a garden, and to have children. And we too face the same dilemma that the Israelites faced there in, in Babylon. We know that we will not stay here. We know that we, will not, uh, that we will not last here. One of these days, Christ is going to call us away. And there we will wait for Christ to return. We'll return with Him and reign for a thousand years. But the question that we ask is, is what are we to do now? What are we to do here now? The reality is, is that we cannot take anything with us to the next world. All the temporal things that we obtain, that we work for, are but dust. They will vanish. We cannot take them. We cannot take the temporal things into an eternal, uh, into an eternal heaven. And and so our temptation might be to abandon the temporal things, to uh, to set aside those things, and to set our eyes only on the temporal. And and there's a sense of truth to that. Our ambitions, our goals, uh, our, our our vision ought to be eternal. But we are not to abandon the temporal. We are to be good testimonies in this life. And so we have to balance the eternal and the temporal. Just like the Israelites had to balance a desire for the homeland and their time in Babylon, so we have to find a balance as Christians between our time here on earth and the treasures that we are laying up in heaven. And let me stop here and readily admit that I know that we are tasked with a great commission. We are to preach the gospel. We are to plant churches. We are to advance God's kingdom in that way. And all of that is certainly true. But to leave our Christian duties there is actually, to leave our Christian duties at those things which pertain to evangelism is actually to do a disservice to the kingdom of God. Uh, we can do much harm by simply neglecting everything else that God has called us to do. Uh, the, by neglecting the, uh, the, the temporal things in this, in this life. Certainly God has called many of you to a vocation. And you ought to take that seriously. Uh, that is a place where you can be a tremendous testimony of what a godly Christian, what a blessed Christian looks like. There is much more to the Christian life than just preaching the gospel and planting churches, though that is a big part of it. Uh, that is certainly what we what we we ought to be doing, but but there are things that we do in the temporal world that are a part of the Christian life that have eternal significance and eternal value, and I believe it would do us well to see our existence, our whole existence, both that which we do for eternity, ministry and evangelism, and that which we do in this time, in this space, in this world, as for the Lord. As Paul wrote in Colossians, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. That ought to be our mindset with everything that we do. That we are not doing it uh, for other men. We are doing it for the Lord. And we ought to do it as if we are doing it to the Lord. That does not apply to merely evangelism and separation. It applies to everything. 
It applies to home life. It applies to work life. It applies to church life. It applies to all of life. And let me point out one other thing about these verses or about these, these imperatives here in these verses. And that is that, that God could, the, the commands that God gives them are related to the basic necessities. Build a home, build a house, plant a garden, and have children. So you have the necessities of, of, of a home, shelter. You have the necessity of food. Obviously, those things are ne- necessary for, for living. And then having children, which is also a vital part of life as well, having a, a family. And so what, what I believe the Lord is telling the Israelites here is to don't get caught up in the luxuries of the Babylonian lifestyle. Be content with what the Lord provides you. Uh, the words of Paul echo this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. And contentment is a necessary virtue to be a godly Christian. It's necessary. It's necessary. When we think about these commands here in these verses just a little bit more, I believe we can glean what is the crux of the message from the Lord here. What is it that the Lord told them to do? It is to build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit of them, and have children. Marry and have children. Let's think about each of these things. First of all, building a house. Building a house requires a long-term plan. You have to obtain land. You have to obtain the supplies uh, to build. You have to imagine that you'll be there long enough to live in the house once you've built it. And again, these Jews have brought with them nothing into Babylon. So they're starting over. They don't have the supplies to build. Uh, they they are, are starting over. They're going to have to procure these, these items. They're going to have to work uh, to earn a living to, to, to be able to obtain the materials needed to build a house upon a land that they purchased. Building a house also requires diligence. It requires a long-term vision, but it also requires diligence. You don't wake up one morning and have a house. It requires diligence uh, and doing, doing the things that are required in building a house, doing them well. Building a house requires patience as well. You have to be patient with the process. And if you're wise, you'll need to be patient in saving before you begin the project uh, and before you make the plunge into building that house. You think about planting a garden. Planting a garden requires, again, long-term thinking. It requires a long-term vision. You have to be willing to look beyond tomorrow, look beyond next week, look beyond next month in some cases, and, and, and expect a reward for your labor long into the future. I, I'm sure that they were expected to plant vineyards and trees and, and bushes that would yield a harvest for many years into the future. So it requires a long-term vision. You have to be able to see value years, literally years, into the future. Gardening also requires diligence. Almost all of your work is done up front when you plant, when you uh, prepare the soil, when you plant the seed, when you obtain the seed that you're going, going to plant. And so gardening requires diligence. Of course, the, the work is not completely done once you've planted the seed. You need to make sure that the seed is watered every day. You need to make sure that weeds uh, do not rob the uh, seed from the nutrients that are necessary for its growth. And so you have to maintain the garden on a daily basis. It requires diligence. Gardening also requires patience. You don't get to rush the growth of that seed. That seed isn't going to produce a harvest before you want it, uh, b- before, uh, before the Lord allows it 
to produce a harvest. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. Indeed, I believe gardening is the model for all of work in all of life. Uh, it requires patience. It requires diligence. Uh, and it requires long-term vision. And, and let me just go off on a, on a quick little side note here. Uh, this is, in fact, what the Lord put man in a garden to do, which is to garden. And I believe that that sets a precedent for all of work, that that, that, that model, and obviously we are not supposed to garden everybody, not, not necessarily anyway, but, but that model of diligence, of patience, uh, of persistence, of long-term vision is the model for, for uh, all of work, no matter what it is, uh, in, in my opinion anyway. The, the third command here is to marry and have children. Now, look at what the Lord says there at the, verse, verse, the end of verse number 6. The reason for having children, for having wives and children, is that you may be increased there and not diminished. So the Lord wants them to build families and increase in numbers while they're in Babylon, so that when they return to the nation of Judah, that they return with more numbers than they came into Babylon. They should always be growing. And building a family is the longest-term project of all of these. You have to literally think decades into the future. You have to plan decades into the future for, for children. 25, 30 years sometimes, depending, on, of course, on how many uh, children you have. And in order to have a God-honoring family, it's going to require diligence. Uh, you can have a family without diligence, but it won't be God-honoring. If you want a God-honoring family, uh, it is going to require some, some, diligence, some diligence. But it's also going, I mean, you're going to have to think about education, you're going to have to think about discipline, you're going to have to think about entertainment, religious training. All of that's essential to raising children, especially in a pagan world. And that's going to take a community effort. That's going to take a united vision to raise, to raise, those, to raise those children. So it's, it's diligence. It's a long-term vision, long-term plan. But it also takes patience. You, you don't wake up one day with little angels. That doesn't, that's not how it happens. You also don't wake up one day with mature Christians uh, as children. Uh, it takes time. You have to, when they're little, you have to teach them, uh, you have to teach them the Word of God at a young age. You, you obviously can't teach them you know, eschatology or something complicated, but you have to build the foundations. You have to teach them the simple, the basic things. And then when they get older, you build upon that foundation. You reaffirm what you taught them at a younger age, and you build upon that. You expand upon that. And you do that until they are a full-functioning adult. And even beyond that, you teach them from experience uh, and, and, and whatnot. But building a family requires long-term vision. It requires diligence. It requires patience. So all of these things require diligence, patience, and a long-term vision. What is it the Lord is telling them to do here? He is telling them to build something that lasts. Something that will outlast them, in fact. And I can, I, I can imagine that the temptation would be to, uh, to, to, to think, oh, we're going to be out of here pretty soon. There's no point in building a house and planting a garden and building a family. But the Lord instructs them to think beyond the immediate uh, uh, thought of, we're getting out of here soon. Build something that will last. And I think that applies to you and I in modern day today. That we ought to think beyond we're getting out of here soon. And we ought to build something that lasts. But the question is, what does that look like? What does it mean to be a faithful Christian in temporal things? And of course, we have to have balance. A balance between long-term thinking 
And we know not, know not what shall be on the morrow. A balance between urgency and patience. Uh, we have to find a balance between the tortoise and the hare in Aesop's fable. Uh, in, in running as fast as we can and slow and steady in this life. And when you find that balance, it will look an awful like what, what uh, an awful lot like what the Lord is commanding these Jews to do here, and that is to build something that lasts. In fact, build something that outlasts you. You simply build each day as God provides. Uh, we don't presume that we have tomorrow, but we plan as though we have many tomorrows. Patience and diligence are the perfect combination. And this is the way that we as Christians, with maybe a day maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a year, maybe a hundred years, ought to live our lives with patience and diligence and commitment to the Lord's calling upon our lives. Now, the specific commands here don't necessarily apply to you and I. If God blesses you uh, and you want to buy a piece of land and build a house on, great, that's wonderful. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that you should take these verses and necessarily justify that. That's not, the Lord's not commanding you to do that through Jeremiah chapter 29. But if you want to do that, and, and, and the Lord gives you liberty to do that, and, and the Lord blesses you to do that, great. If you want to plant a garden, great. You, 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 that's actually not a bad idea. If you want to plant some fruit trees, plant some, some berry bushes, plant some, plant some vegetables, uh, that's, that's actually probably a good idea. But at the same time, not all of us are able to do that. Maybe you live in a second-story apartment. You're not going to be able to plant fruit trees. I'd like to see you try, though. But you're not going to be able to do it. So, so the Lord, these commands are not necessarily uh, to, to us. And even building a family, uh, the Lord doesn't necessarily allow everyone to build a family. But I do believe that in, in, in this particular case, if the Lord blesses you and you're able to, that you should, you should seriously pray and consider uh, having, having many children. Uh, having, I, I almost want to say having as many children as the Lord will, will give you, but uh, I don't want to go quite that far because I certainly hope the Lord doesn't give us a dozen or, or more children. I think we'll stop before then. But, but you ought to, young, young adults, you ought to seriously consider about big families. I really believe big families is a good idea uh, if there is diligence and there is patience applied. And, and let me just take a quick time out. Let me digress a little bit and talk about families because... Because I do believe that there is a stigma in our I know there's a stigma in our society towards big families. Big families are frowned upon in this world, and, and to a certain extent, big families are frowned upon even in our Christian churches. Uh, young, young people are encouraged to take their time with starting a family, and, and frankly, for, for some, that's not a bad idea. Uh, but but, but the, idea, the idea does not come from a good place. The idea comes from a secular uh, influence upon us. And, and I, I think we ought to be really careful of that secularist mindset. And the absurdity, and, and just to, again, I'm, I'm digressing here, uh, so bear with me. And you may not agree with this, and that's fine. We can be friends and, and have coffee after church. But the absurdity of the secularist philosophy is, is that they can't reproduce. It's not quite as extreme as the homosexuals, but it's not far off. The secularists don't have the children. So they require recruitment in order to reproduce secularists. And you know where they're recruiting from. They're recruiting, recruiting from our pews. They're recruiting our children specifically. And they begin at a young age. I mean, they begin before probably you notice. 
Uh, parents, I, I think we ought to be real careful of the stuff we let our children watch and read, the influences on our children. Uh, hey, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, be, I'll be a little careful with what I say here. I know Brother Jeremy will agree with me on this one, but you ought to be careful with Disney. You ought to be careful with Disney. The philosophy that Disney teaches, that philosophy of self, boy, it's dangerous. Boy, it's, it's dangerous. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-value. Find yourself. Well, you can find that in Disney. You ought to be careful of it. If your parents don't see the danger in that, it might be because you bought into the worldly secular philosophies yourself. You ought to be careful with what we put in front of our children. If you don't have a problem with putting your children in public school where they teach things that are directly opposed to the Word of God, you might be blind. Uh, you are certainly spiritually dull. So we ought to be careful of the influences, that, that, that secular influence. And one of the ways that I see that secular influence in our churches today is through a little bit of a mockery of big families. A little bit of mockery of, of homeschooling. Now, let me, be, let me be clear here, okay? I believe there's a difference between homeschoolers and those that are homeschooled. I think you'll catch on to the difference. Homeschoolers, well, you can, you can point them out, just, just to be kind. Those that are homeschooled are, are, are not necessarily as obvious. Uh, and and, and I, I do believe that our Christian children ought to be normal in some sense, uh, we ought to be weird. Uh, we ought to be different from the world in a Christian sense. But we ought to be normal. We ought to be able to communicate with people and look people in the eyes and be respectful with people, certainly. But, uh, but we, also not, uh, we ought not compromise any of our values. We ought not allow the influence of the world educate and entertain our children. We ought to be real careful about that. And I would encourage you to, 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 to seriously, especially if you have young children or if you don't have children yet, you're about to get married or thinking about getting, certainly thinking about getting married, and, and you're starting to frame how, how you're going to educate your children, uh, I, would, I would give serious consideration to the influences that you allow in your children's life. And, 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 and I want to be, be clear about this. I have not perfected this. You know, we've got little children ourselves, but this is something we, we have thought about. This is something we are thinking about. This is something you've got to actively monitor. Uh, but, but if the Lord allows, um, let me, I, I digressed a little bit too much. I, I was trying to talk about big families. A big family is a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, a big family, especially if they are trained right, uh, what's the verse in, 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 chapter, in Psalms? Arrows in the hands of a mighty man, a mighty man. That's how children ought to be, ought to be, ought to be perceived. And by the way, the children in the hands of the mighty man. I'm not the mighty man. The Lord's the mighty man. Let him shoot them out wherever he wants wants them to go. And and you know the best way to have a missionary be raised up in my home is to have lots of children. And the best way to send out a doctrine of the world to be a good influence and to to impact this world for Christ is to have a lot of children. And so having lots of children, if you have the discipline, if you have the patience and the diligence in raising those children, is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good way to be a t good testimony to the Lord. There, there is, I, I don't know that there is much of a better testimony in this world than seeing a big family walk around Walmart with well-behaved children. You stick out like a sore thumb because one, nobody else has got that many children in there. And the people that do have children, I was in Walmart the other day, and I even had AirPods on. And I was just, just listening to music, and, and there was this kid behind me, 
And he was screaming. I mean, he was screaming. I had to look around, just kind of observe it a little bit uh, because it was a little entertaining. But, but as a Christian, you know, if your children are well-behaved, let me tell you, that is a great witness to the Lord. You will have people stop you and ask you what you do. And be careful what you tell them that you do. You don't want to have your children taken away from you. But uh, big families, homeschooling is a good idea. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not critical of anybody that puts their children in, criti- in Christian school. I would be a little critical of somebody that puts their children in public school. Um, but, but, but you ought to pray, pray about that and, and certainly have liberty. But, uh, but be guided by the Spirit uh, as, you, as you raise your family and as you make decisions about your children's education and entertainment. Well, let me, let me get back uh, to the text. I believe that this principle of long-term vision, of diligence and patience, applies to other aspects of our life as well. In fact, I think it applies to every other aspect of our life. That we ought to have diligence and patience and a long-term vision in everything that we do. Now, there are normal day occurrences like changing the filter, you know, in your house. That's not, that doesn't require a long-term vision, okay? So tasks like that don't require they do require diligence, but they don't require long-term vision, and they don't require necessarily patience. But overarching in our life, the projects that we are involved with, the, the commitments that we have in this life ought to be long-term oriented. They ought to be driven by diligence and by patience. When you choose a spouse, you shouldn't be thinking about someone to sleep with. You should be thinking about somebody to build a family with and serve God with. That's a long-term vision. That's patience and that's diligence. Uh, these guys, Brother Nathan and, and Dad, who have memorized the book of Colossians, are a great model for us in, in long-term vision, diligence, and patience when it comes to Scripture memory. Uh, when you memorize the book of Colossians, you guys working on First Peter as well, that requires a long-term vision. You have to be able to look beyond the, the 10, 15 minutes that you spend a day on Scripture memory and see the reward of that, having a book Memorize. That's a model for, for all of us. Uh, you ought to take this perspective with at least a portion of your Bible study. I do not believe a healthy Christian Bible uh, study plan is just reading three chapters a day and moving on with your life. That's not saturating your mind with the Word of God. I believe that every Christian ought to have some, some topic, some book, some whatever it may be, some character that they are studying. Hey, pick you a book. Uh, pick, pick, pick the book of James, pick whatever book, buy you some commentaries, find some good sermon series to listen on that book, and study the book. Immerse your mind in that, in that book for a few months. That, that's a long-term vision, that's a long-term plan. It requires diligence, and it requires patience, but you'll be thankful if you appreciate Bible study, you'll be thankful that you did that. Learn an instrument. When you learn an instrument, that requires a long-term vision. You have to think beyond the 30 minutes an hour that you're spending practicing that a day. And you have to, you have to see the reward that is in front of you. Uh, it takes long-term vision, it takes patience, and it takes diligence. You can't skip days. You've got to work at it. You've got to be diligent. Men, build a career. Uh, don't, don't work in the typical fashion that you are working for the weekend. But put yourself in your work. Find joy in serving other people. Work your way up the ladder. Try to become valuable in your company. Have a long-term vision. Diligently work at that. Uh, Have patience uh, in your work. Children, 
You should look at your education as, as, as one of these things that you should have a long-term vision at. A vision at. Uh, read extracurricular stuff. Learn extra things about, about history. Uh, dive into economics. Do whatever you need to do to go above and beyond the call of duty. You need to have a long-term vision. need to have patience with it and need to have diligence with it. And don't get discouraged when it takes a lot of time because long-term projects by nature take a long time. They don't get done tomorrow. Don't rush the process. Build something like you would grow a garden. Plant the seed. Come back tomorrow and water it. Pull the weeds. Come back tomorrow. Pull the weeds. Water it. The, the, the next day, the next day, the next day. Diligently work at it. But don't get discouraged. Don't expect to be Mozart in a week because that's not going to happen. You've got to cultivate it. You've got to work at it. And the key is, is do it for the glory of God. Do it as unto the Lord, no matter what you do. When you work your career, do it as unto the Lord. When you learn an instrument, do it with the intention of being able to play in church and be able to play hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, when you build a house, do it as unto the Lord, planning to have people over so that you can be a blessing to them. You can, you can find eternal purpose in everything you do with a long-term vision, a long-term plan. If you, even with the garden, Plant your garden and plan to give some of that, that fruit, give some of those vegetables away. Uh, yeah, Brother Eric, <laughs> I'm sure you want some of our fruit and our vegetables. But the Lord, the Lord sees patient and diligent work. And you know, we oftentimes look at the secular work that we do and, and we don't find any eternal value in it. But, but I think we've got to be less results-oriented and more process-oriented. When you do anything as unto the Lord, the Lord blesses it, the Lord sees it, and the Lord rewards it. Even if you don't see how God gets glory from it, if you're doing it as unto the Lord, He will, he will reward it. Now, the Christian that walks and builds this way is a stable, growing, or at least looks like a stable, growing, wise Christian that honors God. This type of Christian is not going to win the lottery. This type of Christian is not going to take out a lot of debt to accelerate their business. Uh, this type of Christian is going to simply take their time, be diligent in the building process, and let God bless as He sees fit. To trust God and let Him take care of the rest. So how do we live in this pagan world? We should be diligently, patiently, faithfully building. Building families, building relationships, uh, building businesses and careers, building ministries, um, building our lives one block, one brick at a time. And let God bless. Not trying to finish our building tomorrow, but relying on God to bless our efforts and our patience and our diligence. And we're, gonna, we're just going to have to go ahead and skip verse 7. It's been a little longer tonight, so we're going to skip verse number 7, which deals with um, praying for and seeking the peace of the city. Um, I think that explains itself. But, but build something. Build something that will last long term. Build a family. Build a business. Build a vocation. Build relationships. Uh, build a life that God can bless. Let's pray.